one knows our names and where we live and how to him to condemn or forgive. Buries our dreams under a pile of lies. Power hates to see hope shining in our eyes. When power reigns and plays its games, power kills the strongest wills. But someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to find a way to save the day Let this be the hour to speak truth to power Hi everybody, I'm Charles Ortlib. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Today on Truth to Power, I'm going to explain why and how the HIV AIDS establishment has been conducting a virtual scientific Ponzi scheme for over three decades. Of course, most people are familiar with the term Ponzi scheme because of Bernie Madoff. Madoff operated a financial Ponzi scheme as far back as the mid-1980s, about the time the CDC's virtual HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme also began. While the Madoff Ponzi scheme affected 4,800 clients, the CDC's HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme is affecting millions and maybe even billions of people. A financial scheme is a fraudulent investment operation where the operator generates returns for older investors through returns paid by new investors rather than from legitimate business activity. A scientific Ponzi scheme builds a growing empire of what seems to be successful science on a shaky foundation of fraud and deceit. Scientific Ponzi schemes can find many useful public health propaganda tools to deceive the public. Both a financial Ponzi scheme and a scientific Ponzi scheme depend heavily on maintaining the appearance that everything is proceeding swimmingly. Bernie Madoff had people who created false trading reports. The CDC had a whole HIV establishment creating politically motivated racist and heterosexist HIV science that was mistaken, disingenuous, and often downright fraudulent. Day in and day out, Science was presented in glorious pronouncements that were the equivalent of fake returns on fraudulent investments. The HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme basically created a world of scientific garbage in, scientific garbage out. You can find a list of the 10 elements of a scientific Ponzi scheme on my website, HHV6 University. In the case of Madoff, for nine years, an independent forensic accounting and financial fraud investigator named Harry M. Markopoulos 
discovered evidence that Madoff was operating a Ponzi scheme and in 2000, 2001, and 2005, he alerted the SEC of the fraud, but the SEC ignored both him and the supporting documents he provided them with. As for the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme, starting in the mid-80s, until we were driven out of business partially by a campaign conducted by AIDS activists, my newspaper, New York Native, published articles that tried to expose the fraud and cover-ups going on at the Centers for Disease Control in AIDS research. And we were ignored by the scientific establishment as well as the mainstream media and even the rest of the gay media. It now turns out that the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme that we were onto was concealing something that I call the 50 Shades of AIDS Epidemic. That's the 50 Shades of AIDS Epidemic. And that epidemic is linked to what I call the 50 Shades of AIDS Virus, otherwise known as HHV6, Human Herpes Virus 6. One of the many illnesses also linked to the 50 Shades of AIDS Virus is Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, which my paper covered in great detail for nearly a decade. If you want to know more about the New York Natives' coverage of all this, I urge you to read my book, Truth to Power, which is now on Amazon. There is more information on Truth to Power in all my books at charlesortleb.com. That's charles, O-R-T-L-E-B.com. You can also find a lot of historically important New York Native reporting on these issues in the books by Native contributors John Lauritsen and Nina Ostrom. Their books are also available on Amazon. Now, before I talk to you about one of the Bernie Madoffs of the AIDS epidemic, I need to talk about two mysteries. The first is the mystery of the Richard Du Bois cases of chronic disabling fatigue in Atlanta. We need to go back in time. In the early 80s, a physician in Atlanta, the home of the CDC, started seeing cases of a mysterious illness. With several other scientists, that physician, Richard Du Bois, ended up publishing an article in the Southern Medical Journal about the cases he and other physicians around the country had been seeing. Quote, we present data on 14 patients with the chronic symptoms of disabling fatigue in association with serological evidence of active Epstein-Barr virus infection. Two-thirds were women, and the average age at onset was 29.6 years. 43% were known to have had previous infectious mononucleosis, but the usual criteria for that diagnosis were not helpful with the present syndrome. 86% had serological evidence of cytomegalovirus infection. Profound immunodeficiency was not present, but 71% had partial hypogammaglobulinemia, and minor abnormalities of T-cell subsets were noted in six of seven patients studied. 57% achieved temporary serologic and symptomatic remission after an average duration of 33 months. Only one patient has a sustained remission. Now, most of my listeners know that those mysterious cases turned out to be chronic fatigue syndrome. If you need to know more about chronic fatigue syndrome, please listen to my first show in which I did a fascinating interview with Hillary Johnson, the author of Osler's Web, <clears throat> The Bible of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. For years, the CDC and scientific leaders like Anthony Fauci of the NIH have pretended that chronic fatigue syndrome is a psychological disorder. According to Hillary Johnson's book, Fauci even said something insulting about the fact that patients should not be ashamed of mental illness. That is one of the reasons that those who have encountered the man considered to be the AIDS czar know and love him. To this very day, chronic fatigue syndrome is treated by the CDC and NIH as though they are a big mystery. I should say a big, old, very old mystery. 
Though there have been a pile of findings about chronic fatigue syndrome that inspires some researchers to give it names like AIDS minor or AIDS light or even non-HIV AIDS, it's unusual to see the words chronic fatigue syndrome without the word mystery all over them like a cheap suit. Today I'll be explaining why anyone who understands the CDC's AIDS Ponzi scheme will quickly grasp why the CDC and NIH have to play the deceptive game of move along, nothing serious going on here folks, they're all crazy as loons. The second big mystery I want to talk about is something one could call the new mysterious gay plague. I know you're thinking, not another one. Well, just wait until you hear this. Thanks to an article in the March 2nd Huffington Post, we now know that some other big medical problem has hit the gay community that the media is ignoring. By the way, I'm famous for not ignoring things like this. My newspaper, New York Native, is credited with being the only publication in the world to take AIDS seriously for the first couple of years. So it's not surprising that the story about a new mysterious gay plague caught my eye. The article by Michael Hobbs is called Alone Together, the Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. I don't have time to talk about the entire article. I want to concentrate on a passage about a man named Travis Salway, someone Hobbs describes as a researcher with the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. Hobbs writes, Salway grew up in Salina, Ohio, a rusting factory town of maybe 10,000 people, the kind of place, he says, where marriage competed with college for the 21-year-olds. He got bullied for being gay before he even knew he was. I was effeminate and I was in the choir, he says. That was enough. So he got careful. Hobbes writes that he had a girlfriend through most of high school and tried to avoid boys, both romantically and platonically, until he could get out of there. By the late 2000s, he was a social worker and epidemiologist, and like Hobbes, he was struck by the growing distance between his straight and gay friends. He started to wonder if the story he had always heard about gay men and mental health was incomplete. Salway told Hobbes, quote, The defining feature of gay men used to be the loneliness of the closet. But now you've got millions of gay men who have come out of the closet and they still feel the same isolation. Hobbes writes, When the disparity first came to light in the 50s and 60s, doctors thought it was a symptom of homosexuality itself, just one of many manifestations of what was, at the time, known as sexual inversion. As the gay rights movement gained steam, though, homosexuality disappeared from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and the explanation shifted to trauma. Hobbes writes that gay men were being kicked out of their own families, their love lives were illegal, and of course they had alarming rates of suicide and depression. Salway says, that was the idea I had, too, that gay suicide was a problem of a bygone era, or it was concentrated among adolescents who didn't see any other way out. And then he looked at the data. The problem wasn't just suicide. It wasn't just afflicting teenagers, and it wasn't just happening in areas stained by homophobia. Hobbes writes, quote, He found that gay men everywhere at every age have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, cancer, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, allergies, and asthma. You name it, we've got it. I want to read that sentence one more time. He found that gay men everywhere at every age have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, cancer, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, allergies, and asthma. You name it, we got it. Okay, 
Now, while the Hobbes article has probably caused a rather yucky tsunami of pity for the gay community, which is portrayed as, well, let's just say pathetic, I was outraged, to say the least, by the attempt to attribute all those medical problems to psychological factors. I mean, really? Higher rates of cardiovascular disease, cancer, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, allergies, and asthma? And insofar as Hobbes wrote, you name it, we've got it, I suspect that those are the tip of a medical iceberg. The Hobbes article attempts to suggest that these medical conditions are linked to loneliness, alienation, emotional detachment, and what he refers to as minority stress. In other words, an Easter basket full of colorful mental health problems. Hobbes also writes, All of these unbearable statistics lead to the same conclusion. It is still dangerously alienating to go through life as a man attracted to other men. The good news, though, is that epidemiologists and social scientists are closer than ever to understanding all the reasons why. Anyone who has read my book on the politics of science called Yatrogenocide knows that when I hear the word epidemiologist, I usually check to see if I still have my wallet. From my perspective, both Hobbes and Salway are well-meaning baloney artists, and from my experience, many people in the gay community are all too susceptible to armchair social criticism of baloney artists. Any attention is welcome, even if it is a steaming pot of nonsense in an online publication like Huffington Post, which often refers to gays as queers. I was especially struck by the fact that Hobbes speaks highly about a so-called stress researcher who just ran the country's first randomized controlled trial of gay-affirming cognitive behavior therapy. For anyone who knows the history of the cover-up of the chronic fatigue syndrome or non-HIV-AIDS epidemic, those are fighting words. Cognitive behavioral therapy is what the lobby that wants CFS to be considered a psychological, not a physical ailment, has been throwing at people, especially in England, for years. So anyway, I've always been fascinated by naive narrators like the Huffington Post's Michael Hobbs. He didn't realize it, but he was letting a humongous cat out of the bag when he wrote that Salway, quote, found that gay men everywhere at every age have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, cancer, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, allergies, and asthma. It was like the moment in the 80s when I heard about chronic fatigue syndrome and got the confirmation of something that I strongly suspected, namely that the Centers for Disease Control was concealing the real nature of the AIDS epidemic. You could say that was a moment of confirmation that something like a scientific Ponzi scheme was underway. For the rest of the show, I'll refer to these illnesses as the Hobbes-Salway epidemic, which I think is another moment in which a big part of the real AIDS epidemic has finally made itself manifest. But now it is time to focus on one of the chief architects of the HIV fraud Ponzi scheme. In 1981, I was chief of the research branch of the STD control division at the CDC, and we were studying uh, gonorrhea complications, chlamydia, infertility, but also hepatitis B transmission among gay men. And we were working with the hepatitis division at CDC on a vaccine trial in gay men in five cities in the United States. We learned in late May of 1981 that there were several uh, requests for pentamidine isothionate, a drug to treat pneumocystis pneumonia, and distributed by the CDC uh, from doctors in California and New York. Uh, Dr. Michael Gottlieb from UCLA at the time uh, worked with uh, Wayne Shandera, an Epidemic Intelligence Service officer 
in Los Angeles to summarize the five cases that they had seen in that metropolitan area for report in MMWR. I received the draft of the article because we'd been working with gay men and STDs um, the week before it was to be published. Along with my other colleagues in STD research, we were floored that um, previously healthy gay men were dying or nearly dying from such a rare infection, um, an infection which is a, usually a scavenger among people whose immune systems are compromised. And of course, from our point of view, uh, from our STD lens, we immediately thought that this could be something related uh, to sexual behavior and sexual transmission. When the uh, first MMWR article was about to be published, the CDC called together a group of uh, scientists, investigators, and administrators, and we formed a task force. And I was asked, asked to chair the task force for the initial investigations. Uh, it was detailed initially for three months uh, to head this group. Well, the first thing that we did was develop a case definition for surveillance purposes. And then we deployed uh, physicians and epidemiologists to all of the major cities of the country in search of cases. We also worked closely with state and local health departments uh, to, to do this. And then, of course, by publishing the articles quickly, we were calling for additional case reports. We were uh, concerned to find out whether this was a new phenomenon or simply one that was newly recognized, and whether it was increasing in frequency, and who was really affected. Was it truly all men? Was it truly all gay men? Uh, were women also affected, children? Uh, was it occurring elsewhere than the United States? Was it occurring in additional states? And so investigations could not be limited to a single group, nor could it be limited to a single country or a single part of the country. So it was important not to presuppose that we knew what the distribution of cases were. It was important to come up with a definition which could be applied universally. And the definition was adopted throughout the world almost immediately. That was the Centers for Disease Control's James Curran, one of the chief architects of the original AIDS paradigm. It is darkly amusing to hear him bragging about what he and his associates at the CDC did, considering the mess they ultimately made. Curran had the perfect medical background for laying down the formative, heterosexually biased interpretations of the early data that epidemiologists gathered about the sick gay men who were thought to be the patient zero of the new epidemic. Jacob Levinson described Curran in his book, The Secret Epidemic, The Story of AIDS in Black America, this way, quote, Jim Curran, the chief of the CDC's venereal disease control division, was tapped to head up a Kaposi sarcoma and opportunistic infection task force. Despite being short-staffed and underfunded, the task force managed to bring together experts from diverse fields like virology, cancer, and parasitic diseases, in addition to a small team of epidemiological intelligence officers who were the agency's foot soldiers for disease prevention. He had done quite a bit of work on hepatitis B with gay men in the 1970s, and he almost immediately suspected that they had a similar sexually transmitted and blood-borne disease on their hands. And that suspicion, folks, paved the way for one of the biggest conceptual mistakes in the history of epidemiology. 
Randy Schultz in his book and the band played on reported that when Curran saw the first reports on pneumocystis carinae pneumonia in gay men, he wrote an odd note to one of his colleagues saying, hot stuff, hot stuff. Schultz also described a rather revealing meeting at a subsequent CDC conference at which Curran was briefed on the sexual behavior of gay men by a chatty gay physician named David Ostro. According to Schultz, quote, Ostro mused on the years he had spent getting Curran and Dr. Jaffe current CDC colleague, acculturated to the gritty details of gay sexual habits. Curran had seemed uptight at the start, Ostra thought, but he buckled down to his work. Both Jaffe and Curran were unusual in that federal officials rarely had any kind of contact with gays, and the few who did rarely wanted to hear detailed gymnastics of gay sex. It became quite clear that, that immune suppression was a central to what was being seen. Uh, what was unclear is what was causing immune suppression and whether the immune suppression itself was uh, central to the condition, uh, whether it was acquired, it seemed to be acquired, uh, and what was causing it. Many of us at the CDC who had worked on uh, sexually transmitted diseases and particularly hepatitis B among gay men saw a model of uh, a virus which was transmitted like hepatitis B uh, through sexual contact, uh, through injecting uh, uh, drugs, uh, or through transfusions as a model which best fit uh, the epidemic. Whether this was a new virus or an altered virus, for example, <clears throat> perhaps an altered cytomegalovirus, or whether it represented uh, viral overload from uh, multiple viruses was unclear at the time. But there were many people with other hypotheses, environmental hypotheses and, and others, that were uh, competing for time. And it was important to keep an open mind. Unfortunately, Curran and his colleagues did not keep an open mind, and many people with a better understanding of what was going on were elbowed out of the way. And of course, people all over the world suffering from HHV6 and chronic fatigue syndrome are paying a terrible price for Curran's misjudgment. Curran was married and the father of two children. Three days into what he thought was the sexually transmitted epidemic, he was examining gay patients and already, according to Schultz, he was, quote, struck by how identifiably gay all the patients seemed to be. These gays were apparently really gay, not the plain clothes kind who could pass. According to Schultz, these gays, quote, hadn't just peeked out of the closet yesterday. It may have been the perceived intense gayness of the first patients, the really gay ones, that resulted in Curran's huge consequential mistake of erecting a mostly gay venereal epidemiological paradigm that would become the virtual 30-year hate crime against all gays, both the ones who could pass and the ones who were really gay. It wasn't just the patients, however, who were strange. The strangeness of the people who had the disease would inspire a strange new kind of science, epidemiology, and virology that was, in essence, what I call homodemiology. That's a word to describe epidemiology and science that is hardwired with both heterosexism and obsession with gays, a very lethal combination in epidemiology, science, and public health policy. It was destined to make everything worse for gays and everyone else who had the bad luck of getting caught up in the CDC's paradigm. And that would ultimately even include members of the heterosexual general population, otherwise known as epidemiological collateral damage. Schultz tried to capture Curran's thought process when he wrote, 
it was strange because diseases tended not to strike people on the basis of social group. You think? He added, to Curran's recollection, no epidemic had chosen victims on the basis of how they identified themselves in social terms, much less on the basis of sexual lifestyle. Yet this identification and a propensity for venereal diseases were the only things the patients from three cities, New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, appeared to share. There had to be something within this milieu that was hazardous to these people's health. Well, there certainly was something about to enter this milieu that would be extremely hazardous to these people's health, and that was Curran himself and his merry band of gay, sex-obsessed, group-thinking epidemiologists who were about to hang the albatross of the venereal AIDS paradigm around the neck of the gay community. When Schultz discussed Curran confronting sociological issues that were involved in the mysterious illness, it escaped Schultz that Curran and his associates were themselves sociological and political issues as they plopped themselves in the middle of the gay community at a time when the community was most vulnerable and nearly hysterical. The fact that any illness was labeled gay, gay, gay should probably have been a red flag for the kind of heterosexist thinking that would soon trap the gay community in the biggest epidemiological mistake in history. And this has been true in every country. By the time the cases appear, by the time people become sick, by the time the wards become filled with people who are sick, millions are affected with a virus that will last for life. And absent treatment will be universally fatal. When the, uh, when the epidemiologic pattern became very clear, that is the cases of pneumocystis and Kaposi sarcoma and other infections that were occurring were recognized first in gay men and then in uh, heterosexual injecting drug users and then eventually in some of their heterosexual partners uh, and then finally in persons with hemophilia. There was a need to uh, draft recommendations for people uh, to prevent the disease. Okay, because of the specific case definition, the patterns of a, a transmissible agent were so clear that it was easy for CDC to draft recommendations for prevention and to get rather rapid uh, consensus from other public health service agencies on what should be done. And the recommendations then were adopted by the World Health Organization, the AMA, um, uh, physicians who cared for gay men, the blood banks, the American Red Cross, and others. The initial case definition of AIDS was tracking the end stage of, of, of a syndrome, and it was very specific for purposes of determining patterns. Of course, when the virus was isolated, uh, that allowed for refinement of the AIDS case definition uh, to be certain that the people were infected with the virus. Uh, well over 99% of cases were also positive for for HIV when the tests were done. So the HIV test was added initially to the case definition. The definition was revised later uh, in, in uh, two more times uh, to add other uh, serious and life-threatening HIV-related conditions to it. And then eventually it was revised to take into account severe immune suppression, which again, tracking the end stage of HIV disease. What has been remarkable with uh, our understanding of HIV infection is that 
the patterns of transmission have remained quite stable over time. It is virtually never transmitted through casual contact and is transmitted through sexual contact or exposure to blood or, or perinatally from a mother to either her uh, newborn or through breastfeeding to her baby. The epidemiological pattern was only clear to Curran because the CDC had the very bad habit of cherry-picking data and using circular logic. One could almost faint from the irony of something Schultz wrote about what Curran told Congress in 1982. He said, quote, The epidemic may extend much further than currently described and may include other cancers as well as thousands of persons with immune defects. Every time I read that, I say OMG. But unfortunately, for the most part, AIDS equaled gay, and gay equaled AIDS, and AIDS equaled HIV, and HIV equaled AIDS. So when millions of cases of an AIDS-like illness without HIV surfaced, rather than seeing them as a challenge to their HIV paradigm, the CDC simply judged them to be unrelated because, well, they weren't gay and they didn't involve the HIV that the CDC had carved epidemiologically into stone. So the pattern of transmission seemed very stable because the CDC knew how to cook the books just like the very best Ponzi scheme operators. Something interesting began to surface during James Curran's reign over AIDS at the CDC that bears close scrutiny by any enterprising historian interested in identifying the institutional roots of the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme. In his bestseller, Randy Schultz wrote that in 1983, when Susan Steinmetz, an aide to Congressman Ted Weiss, visited the CDC in an oversight capacity, she was prevented from seeing files she automatically should have been able to audit as a representative of a congressional committee that had oversight responsibilities on health and the environment. According to Schultz, she was told by the then CDC director, William Fagey, she would not have access to any CDC files and she could not talk to any CDC researchers without having management personnel in the room to monitor the conversations. The agency also needed a written, detailed list of specific documents and files Steinmetz wanted to see. Schultz reported that, quote, Steinmetz was flabbergasted. What did they think oversight committees did? Their work routinely involved poring through government files to determine the truth of what the high muckety-mucks denied, and then privately talking to employees who, without prying eyes of their bosses, could tell the truth. That was understood, she thought. The iron curtain of secrecy that would enable the cover-up of the chronic fatigue syndrome in HH36 epidemic and the whole Fifty Shades of AIDS epidemic had descended. While Steinmetz was just trying to find memos that would contradict the CDC's public posture that it had enough money to research the emerging epidemic of AIDS, in essence, the CDC was showing that it wasn't above any of the games that any other part of the government was capable of playing. It was showing us that it was very much cut from the same cloth as the government gremlins that gave us Watergate and Vietnam. You could say that the CDC was perhaps the deepest part of the so-called deep state. Now, that's something you'll never hear on Rachel Maddow's show or any of the so-called liberal media. Schultz reported that Steinmetz wanted to see files that pertained to budgets and planning, but she was bizarrely told that she couldn't see the files because they had patients' names on them, and that violated patient confidentiality. It strained credulity to argue that patients' names were involved in organization budgets and planning, and in retrospect, it was a very lame excuse. 
This would not be the first time during the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme that a dishonest explanation with a fake concern and compassion for patients' welfare would be used by those in authority to stonewall the very people who are actually trying to do something about the welfare of patients. The CDC was already in a paranoid circle-the-wagons mode that characterizes what I call abnormal, totalitarian, and sociopathic science. According to Schultz, the CDC personnel, who struck Steinmetz as peculiarly contentious, wanted to conduct their own review of the files before letting Steinmetz see them. And, quote, as another demand, the CDC insisted that before any interviews with CDC staff took place, the agency would screen questions that Susan Steinmetz put to scientists. Government science was going into lockdown. Stone walls were going up around AIDS. Schultz wrote, Quote, this is getting pretty strange, Steinmetz thought. Strangeness was but a puppy at that point. This new emerging opposite world of public health and scientific duplicity and defensiveness didn't make sense to Steinmetz's colleagues back in D.C. Schultz wrote, quote, on the phone, other oversight committee staffers in Washington confided that they had never heard of an agency so recalcitrant to Congress it got even worse for Steinmetz at the CDC in Atlanta when, on the second day of her oversight visit, she was told by the CDC manager who was handling her visit that her presence would no longer be permitted in the CDC building and that no agency personnel would be allowed to speak to her. The stonewalling and the information lockdown were not confined to the CDC in Atlanta. Schultz reported that Steinmetz also faced new obstacles in her path when the National Cancer Institute officials issued a memo demanding that all interviews with researchers be monitored by the agency's congressional liaison. At first, the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Disease was cooperative, but then, in an apparent NIH-wide clampdown, information became difficult to excavate there as well. Science and public health in America were about to play the same kinds of political games that are played in totalitarian countries. Public health information was about to be totally controlled by the government. You can kind of understand why this would have to be done. I mean, who at the CDC wants to talk about those Du Bois cases of non-HIV AIDS, otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome? And who wants to tell the entire gay community that the Hobbes-Solway epidemic shows that controlling HIV really has nothing to do with controlling the real AIDS epidemic? Cases of AIDS were reported in 1981. Uh, the country was in a uh, was being disciplined by the Reagan administration toward fiscal austerity, particularly in the public health service and other domestic programs. Uh, the CDC and the NIH both were uh, feeling quite poor, and there was essentially no direct funds for AIDS uh, for most of that first year or two. Uh, when the scope of the problem became clear, uh, then funding became available for AIDS, for prevention, for science, for research, and eventually for care. And, and that money was very important in mobilizing uh, the public response and the community response, uh, both with health departments and with providers throughout the country. I think that the United States can be proud of uh, many aspects of how we responded to AIDS. Um, there was a, 
a, a rapid response uh, in a fiscally difficult time by public health service scientists and investigators in working with uh, people in the community to identify the problem and publicize it to the extent we could when we were in an era of denial. Um, and I think the initial prevention recommendations were extremely important in reducing transmission of, of the yet-to-be-discovered virus. We were instrumental in discovering the virus and in developing diagnostic tests and getting them on the market very, very quickly to both protect the blood supply and to diagnose HIV infection, which again leads to further prevention. Um, United States investigators uh, supported by the NIH or at the NIH uh, developed trials uh, uh, to test AZT as the first drug and to test uh, perinatal transmission prevention by giving AZT again to pregnant women uh, both during pregnancy, uh, during delivery, and to their newborns. Actually, I think scientists would be amazed that a mistake as big as HIV could have been made by Curran and his colleagues and that the rest of the scientific community did not have the wisdom or courage to bring them to heel. Schultz writes, quote, During the summer of 1983, Dr. James Curran had grown fond of citing the Willie Sutton Law as evidence that AIDS was caused by a retrovirus. The notorious bank bandit, Willie Sutton was asked once why he robbed banks, to which he replied, because that's where the money is. Curran, according to Schultz, would ask, where should we at the CDC put our money? Where would Willie Sutton go? He would go with retroviruses, I think, right now. There is a revealing amount of cockiness and arrogance in Curran that reminded one that pride goeth before the fall. Retroviruses turned out to be exactly where the big money was for a number of dishonest and incompetent retrovirologists. It is fascinating to see Schultz catching Curran red-handed as he lies about the inadequate funding for AIDS. Publicly, Curran would say, we have everything we need, but Schultz was able to use the Freedom of Information Act to locate documents that revealed that things were not so rosy at the CDC, and Curran knew it. Even while he reassured gay doctors in San Francisco, he was writing memos to his superiors begging for more money. For anyone cognizant of the overwhelming mendacity that characterized just about everything concerning the epidemic, it is especially disturbing to read Schultz's account of Curran's excuse. It's hard to explain to people outside the system, he said. It's two different things to work within the system for a goal and talking to people outside the system for that goal, he said. Curran was basically making the anti-transparency excuses people inside the government always make for talking out of both sides of their mouths. It's too bad Schultz didn't consider the possibility that this character trait was also reflected in the basic science and epidemiology of AIDS that was being churned out by the CDC. Well, Curran got the venereal HIV-AIDS paradigm he and his colleagues always wanted, the one that could be expected to materialize given his background. It wasn't surprising then that he said in 1984, according to Schultz, gay men need to know that if they're going to have promiscuous sex they'll have the life expectancies of people in the developing world. Actually, given the crazy, toxic, fraud-based treatments some gay men were going to be medically assaulted with, he was truly a visionary. HIV infection uh, is an infectious disease, but it's also a chronic disease. And it's gone from 
what initially was an epidemic, that is something which was occurring in greater frequency than expected and growing very rapidly, to something which is now part of our environment, unfortunately. It is the fourth leading cause of death in the world, uh, the leading cause of death in the continent of Africa, um, the leading cause of death among gay men in the world, uh, and it's something which, for which there is going to be no short-term solution. Um, as with dealing with other chronic diseases, there's no room for burnout. Um, and because the problem will not burn out. Um, those of us who have devoted much of our professional lives to this uh, have to seek renewal. We have to make sure that we're not um, uh, running on fumes. And we have to uh, be committed to a problem which will outlast us. When I become skeptical, when I say uh, it's going to be very difficult to develop a vaccine, I don't see how it's possible, or how can we ever cure HIV? I, I think back 20 years or 30 years when people said we would never find the cause of this disease. Uh, there would never be any drugs that could treat such a viral infection. We'll never be able to determine viral load. It's not going to be possible to stop a pregnant woman from transmitting to her child. And so the skepticism that I feel is beaten down by the accomplishments of the past and, and also the enormity of the problem. The biggest challenges that AIDS causes haven't really changed, although there's a, an appetite uh, always for quick solutions and the newest findings. But the biggest challenges remain the same, from my point of view. We have a lifelong infection, which is silent in most people until they become desperately ill many years later. And it's transmissible burnt during a time when it's silent. So the problem is that throughout the world, most of the people who are infected with the virus don't know it. Even in the US, 20% of people are infected, are unaware of their infection and they're responsible for perhaps 50% of the transmissions or more. Uh, throughout the world in developing countries, the people who don't know they're infected transmit the vast majority of infections. That is the central biggest problem from my point of view. No, that is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that those Du Bois cases I talked about at the beginning of the show were always at the bottom of the iceberg of AIDS. And because they were never recognized by the gay, obsessed, clap doctors at the CDC, the real AIDS epidemic may just be starting. HHV6, the virus that does everything HIV does not do, has been allowed to spread, and now it even threatens the HIV-negative gay community. You know, those people with the Hobbes Solway litany of medical problems I mentioned earlier in the show? Wherever HHV6 is causing illness, it is the real legacy of James Curran and his merry band of venereologists. AIDS is not under control because chronic fatigue syndrome and HHV6 are not under control. It's that simple and that terrifying. Scientific Ponzi schemes have consequences. You could say that the horse called HHV6 has been out of the barn for three decades, thanks to James Curran.
Journalist David Black caught some of the underlying psychological problems of the CDC in his book, The Plague Years. He wrote, in fact, the CDC, like many physicians and scientists, seemed embarrassed by the gayness of the disease. Black quoted one CDC researcher as saying to a visiting gay activist, this never would have happened if you guys had gotten married. When the activist asked if the researcher meant to each other, the researcher said, no, to women. The CDC researchers conducted their epidemiology and science in an awkward atmosphere of antipathy to gays, surely not a fertile ground for scientific objectivity. According to Black, when he asked Curran to explain exactly what he meant by intimate contact between men, the phrase researchers kept using to describe the conditions under which the syndrome spread, he seemed uncomfortable, squeamish. He stammered and glanced anxiously around the room. One suspects that most of Jim Curran's best friends were not gay. One absolutely show-stopping moment in Black's rich little book is a criticism that was leveled at Curran. Quote, he started making up these facts from the data as he interpreted it, said one unnamed gay critic of Curran. Wow, who was that astute gay critic? Please stand up now, take your bow. I must close with one more fun fact about James Curran, and it comes courtesy of John Crudson's brilliant book, Science Fictions, which is the story of how Robert Gallo stole credit from the French researchers at the Pasteur Institute. When Gallo was competing with the French over the development of a test for HIV, he was very unhappy when it turned out his test wasn't quite as good as the French test. Gallo wanted the CDC to alter the results so as to reflect a better version of the test. And guess what? To his eternal discredit, James Curran, the top AIDS researcher at the CDC, actually agreed to alter the results. That's AIDS research as I know it, and all I can say is James Curran would have made a great accountant for Bernie Madoff. Okay, so the books I mentioned today on the show include And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz, The Secret Epidemic, The Story of AIDS in Black America by Jacob Levinson, Science Fictions by John Crudson, and The Plague Years by David Black. All of these books are available on Amazon. If you want to know more about HHV6, I suggest you read The Virus Within by Nicholas Regish, which is also available on Amazon. You can also visit my website, HHV6 University. Since 2005, I have been covering all developments in the research and politics of HHV6. You can also visit the HHV6 Foundation's website. The HHV6 Foundation recently held an international HHV6 conference in Berlin, which I will be doing a show about at some point. I'll also be doing a show about the scientific director of the HHV6 Foundation, who claims to have been one of the discoverers of HHV6 when he was in Robert Gallo's lab, will look at the allegations from a now-deceased Boston University scientist named John Beldeckis, who raised the distinct possibility that Sticky Fingers Robert Gallo and his people actually stole credit away from Beldeckis for the discovery of the virus. That show will definitely ruffle a few feathers. I also plan to do a show focused on two of the architects of what I call Holocaust II, Anthony Fauci and Robert Gallo. You're probably aware of Gallo shenanigans, but Anthony Fauci has never quite gotten his due. 
A friend of mine who keeps up with all of this agrees with me that in many ways Fauci continues to be the puppet master of the cover-up of the truth about chronic fatigue syndrome. I do love the loquacious Ms. Rachel Maddow, but my jaw dropped the tragic night she looked him in the eye and said, I think you're a great American. I also plan to do shows on the CDC colleagues of James Curran, who assisted him in creating a virtual HIV Ponzi scheme. By the way, the clips of Curran talking and congratulating himself are from a CDC-produced video, which you can easily find on YouTube. Now, a show like this cannot exist without a little help from its friends. I hope you will go to charlesortlib.com and pick up one of my books. Most of them are available in print and Kindle versions. The one book that will give you deep background on my journey that began with the first report of AIDS is Truth to Power. I take you inside my newspaper as we grapple with one of the biggest and most disturbing stories of our time. You'll be quite surprised by a lot of the information in the book. And you'll understand why I think there is an obvious connection between AIDS, HHV6, and chronic fatigue syndrome. So that's at charlesortlib.com. There you'll also find a lot of free stuff to read, including my book about James Curran and his colleagues at the CDC and the mess they have made of public health. I hope you will take a look at the short story I wrote called The Stonewall Massacre. The story tries to imagine what would have happened in this country if the famous Stonewall riots had failed and the gay community had been completely destroyed. The ending of the story might make your head spin. And at charlesortlib.com, you will also find all the songs I've written with Chris Davidson. Since this show has been about the dangers of insiders doing epidemiology on outsiders, it only seems appropriate to close with our song, Outsiders of the Universe. You can find Chris singing Outsiders of the Universe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services.
stand together We can harness the sun And become an army of light Outsiders of the universe Unite Changing times are changing minds 